0: Something like 200,000 refugees in all left France. The majority of Protestants stayed in France, but about 200,000 left. Now, the largest single number went to the Netherlands. The next largest, probably 40 or 50,000, came to England. About 10,000 came to Ireland, I believe. Now, in terms of the total population of the countries at the time, it's probably a similar a similar number and therefore suggests perhaps a similar contribution.
1: Strangers in Ireland, the Huguenots remembered 300 years on, with contributions from Jean Paul Pition, Michael Goldie, Robin D. Gwynne, Vivian Costello, Patrick Kelly, and John Miller.
2: It's standard in, amongst French historians to divide the Huguenots into the southern ones and the northern one. Roughly, the Loire divides a group of Huguenots centered around Paris and then scattered in very small communities north of the Loire. And the very high density uh, of Protestants in some su- southern regions, particularly in Languedoc, around Montpellier, around uh, Nîmes, and in the south, East in the Dauphiné.
1: So, I mean, what I'm trying to clarify is whether the Catholic-Protestant divide broke down in in straightforward geographical terms, rural-urban. It, it didn't. The the distribution really reflected the state of the
2: communities after the forty years of civil war in the sixteenth century. Um, there were a high concentration in the south, uh, dispersed communities in the north. But generally, there was a patchwork of high-density areas as regards Protestantism, and very low-density areas. Um, they, but that geographic division is only the, uh, the most elementary one. Uh, the more important one, I think, is that uh, the, the religious divide cut across French society. It cut across the groups, the various social groups. It, there, were, there was a divided aristocracy. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a divided bourgeoisie in the towns. Um it cut across even the families uh, because um of the extended notion of that the family represents in the sixteenth and seventeenth century you could not i think find in certain regions one family which wouldn't have members on
1: both sides of the divide. The edict of Nantes itself was was clearly an, an important stage. What led to that between the early sixteenth century and and uh, it's coming to pass. What what kind of circumstances led to it? A situation of general civil
2: and military dissidents in the kingdom. The need uh, to bring in some truce between conflicting parties. Um, at the last stage, just say the five years before the Edict of Nantes, uh, there were armies... Um, Commanded by Henry IV who was to the, rather Henri de Navarre was to become Henry IV. On the one hand, there were armies commanded by the king, and there were also um, dissident groups uh, of ultra-Catholics who had seized Paris in Paris, they known as the, as the League, and. Um, for the thirty years which followed the, um, or at least the twenty years which followed uh, the formation of the French Calvinist churches, the country was in more or less a permanent state of civil and religious war, mm. and the need to bring in a truce to settle the situation. Once Henry IV had acceded to the uh, throne, having converted to Catholicism. Uh, was made imperative also by the situation on the borders. France was in uh, a situation of of, uh, permanent conflict with Spain as well. So uh, to settle the internal situation, uh, to attempt to contain the religious struggle, um, Henry uh, negotiated with the representatives of the Huguenots and reached that agreement, which is known as Lédine Nantes.
1: It looked on the face of it as if they were getting a reasonable deal. What 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 price did the Huguenots have to pay?
2: Yes, they got a good deal in this respect that the edict of Nantes, the major edict, uh, that of the 13th of April, um, gave them a legal identity in the general structure, uh, corporate structure, of the state at the time. In other words although it was not said by name, they were instituted as a, an estate, an ordre, like uh, the clergy, the first estate, or the aristocracy, the second estate. They had rights to representation at court. They had a right to hold ceremonies which signified and manifested their corporate identity. They, of course, obtained uh, the right of worship in those places where it could be established that there had been some Protestant form of worship before the edict. But uh, at the same time as that, uh, the edict did not grant them specifically the permission to maintain a standing army, although in subsequent brevets, uh, really concessions made privately by the king a sort of contract between the king and the Huguenots. They were allowed to maintain garrisons in some towns and to uh, have some kind of protection as regards
1: access to office, for instance. And what about the freedom of power to to evangelize?
2: That was very much curtailed. It was curtailed by one of the articles of the edict which prevented uh, the spread of any literature or of the giving of any sermon which could be considered seditious or likely to arouse uh, uh, the population. And that curtailed certainly uh, the, um, the, 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 the scope for further proselytizing. In fact, what happens with the Edict of Nantes is that the, the, the Huguenot population is frozen legally. Uh, and religiously into the status that it had at that time. And from then on, a number of its uh, advantages, privileges, or liberties are eroded. The permanence of religious conflict in different forms throughout the 17th century uh, led uh, to a state of constant unrest, a lot of administrative and judicial difficulties, and the rising uh, absolutist state... Saw so the Protestant question, above all, I think, as a question of law and order. Um, this sort of legalized dissidence was unacceptable in
1: the um, absolutist, statist perspective of the mm-hmm. time. And I now want to get a, a kind of general map of the the dispersal, um, taking it in in the two key stages. First of all, in the early sixteenth century, and then later at the after the revocation. Um, Did most of them go away, first of all? What percentage stayed? No. um,
2: It's very difficult, of course, to reach accurate figures. But if you consider um, that there may have been perhaps one million uh, French Protestants in the 1680s, that's one out of 20 million for the entire kingdom, um, then it's most likely that not more than 200,000 left the kingdom, Um, and that immigration was
3: not uh, evenly distributed. The English, and still more the Irish uh, immigration, they're not peripheral, perhaps is the wrong word to use, but they are not the largest um, foci of Huguenot immigration. The largest concentration of refugees at this stage go to the Dutch Republic, which is perhaps not surprising as this is the great commercial crossroads of Europe which has already very, very many links with merchants and businessmen in France. There is also very extensive emigration elsewhere. Other countries, in fact, other states, did much more to attract uh, Huguenot immigrants than, than England did in 1685 to 6. As we've seen, James II's welcome was tepid, to put it mildly. Um, whereas some of the German states, in particular, made great efforts and sometimes rather fraudulent efforts to attract um, French immigrants. They, they were short of, of manpower, they were short of skilled men. They were even prepared to try and um, attract French peasant farmers. So you get extraordinary claimed by one town right up in the north of Germany, up in Prussia, that the climate and the soil are wonderful for vine growing. Uh, if, if the poor French peasants actually tried to grow any vines up in this place, they would have been for a terrible shock. Uh, so there, is a, there are almost a sort of dis, uh, employment agencies for u- useful Huguenots set up in Switzerland and particularly uh, at the, uh, Frankfurt am Main, where, which were sort of staging posts. They, they actually called it a turntable um, th- through which Huguenots were dispatched in all directions, basically either up the Rhine towards the the Netherlands or northwards and eastwards into Germany.
1: In the light of your reading, what's your impression of the the psychological profile, if you like, of of the Huguenots?
3: They are a, a mixed bag, as one would expect. It seems that very often it is not in fact the very rich, the the really successful merchants who leave France. They will probably conform to the Catholic Church uh, swallowing their principles Um, and perhaps if they send, they may send other members of the family away, but they will probably stay on to mind the business, Um, which in fact in in a sense extends their business uh, contacts. Um, The same is true to a large extent of the bankers. One of the ironies of of the wars against Louis XIV is that the Louis XIV is actually funded to some extent by loans from Huguenot bankers, which is one of history's many ironies. Perhaps shows that business is much more important than religion, I don't know. Um, For the rest, they are a mixture. There, There are some who are... Those who tend to go are those whose skills are mobile. Soldiers, sailors, artisans, often highly skilled artisans, whose services are very much in demand elsewhere. To some extent, merchants and businessmen, not all that often farmers, partly because the skills which you need, say, to, to grow vines in the south of France are not skills that you can easily adapt to North Germany or to Ireland or England, for that matter. There's a, a high proportion of men on their own, although this is some, these are sometimes, I think, looking to, set to establish themselves before sending for their wives and families. Um, occasionally, you get, uh, at least going through Frankfurt am Main, you've got not so much whole families as whole villages. They, 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 or the Protestant part of the village would just up and, and go. There was another case of a, a village in, uh, West, in western France where the Protestant part of the community just got up and went and walked th- through Spain to Cadiz, a whole lot of them, right around the coast um, but this is the exception rather than the rule, they tend to be individuals and, and with a very high proportion of males as against females Roughly there were three main pathways
2: to emigration uh, to exile um, through the northern borders uh, into Holland, it's the direct route mostly for the Huguenots north of the Loire and the, and the Huguenots in Paris, uh, across the eastern borders to Switzerland. That would be for the southern and eastern ones. And then through the ports uh, to, towards England um, for those living in the western regions. And I have to say that um, those that left uh, and reached Switzerland... Uh, only stayed there very often for a short time. That Switzerland acted as a sort of dispatching centre and that the um, uh, refugees were then sent across to, say, Brandenburg or to Holland or some in- indeed even to England and Ireland. Um, there, are some, uh, there is evidence, in fact, that a number of uh, Huguenot uh, soldiers were recruited in Switzerland for the armies of William and eventually settled in Port Arlington.
0: In the 16th century, after the Reformation, um, there were civil wars in both France and the Netherlands, and a good many Protestants came as refugees to England from those wars, but very few to Ireland, so that the first organised communities in England come in 1549-1550, but there isn't an organised community in Ireland until the Duke of Ormond is Viceroy in the 1660s, so there's a gap of 110 years.
1: Apart from that, what are the main differences in the, the way that the Huguenots were received in, in the
0: two countries? I think there are obvious differences in the climate in England as opposed to Ireland. Um, England was a very Protestant country in the 17th century. Uh, by and large, the Huguenots were welcomed. Um, and in the 1680s, um, England's subjects, who were largely Protestant, uh, felt a bit threatened by the Dragonard in France where troops were being used to compel Protestants to change their faith and some of them feared that there might even be Dragonard in England under the Catholic James II. Now, the situation in Ireland has to be different because the majority of, of the population was Catholic uh, and therefore from a Huguenot point of view um, a less desirable place to come. But. Weren't there
1: many reasons why they mightn't want to come to Ireland, uh, apart from that?
0: Well, they were taking refuge from religious persecution, so they wanted to worship in the way they were used to in France. It was easier for them to do that in England than it was in Ireland, because even once there was a French community in Dublin in the 1660s, it didn't worship in the same way that they had worshipped in France. Whereas in England, there were French churches worshipping in in that way. So that is a further disincentive. Then there's the question of economics. I mean, they were refugees. Many of them had very little. They had to make a livelihood. Ireland's economic prospects were not particularly good in the 1660s. I think they'd improved a lot by the 1690s, and that is when the really large number of Huguenot refugees arrives in Ireland. But what about Ormond's attempts to attract them, to make the country more attractive to them? He did want to attract them, and he wasn't the first. The Cromwellian regime had wanted to attract foreign Protestants. Um, the Earl of Strafford in the 1630s had brought over people from France who he thought could act as weavers in Ireland. But these efforts, by and large, hadn't been very successful. Ormond himself had been in France... ...as a refugee in the 1650s, and he had contacts with French Protestantism. Uh, and his hopes in the 1660s were certainly on a grander scale than the earlier ones. And he clearly did bring people over and settle them, certainly in Dublin... Um, ...and it looks as though he encouraged settlement in some other places. For instance, in Chapel Izzod, he set up weavers. But by and large, his efforts didn't work particularly well... And if there hadn't been more persecution in France in the 1680s, they probably wouldn't have survived. Perhaps you would tell us something about his 1662 Act and and its implications. Well, the 1662 Act uh, invites foreign Protestants um, into Ireland and offers them certain advantages which they couldn't have had in England, most particularly if they took the, the relevant oaths, the oaths of allegiance and obedience, then they could automatically become naturalised. Now, that wasn't the case in England, where it wasn't until, in fact, 1709 that there is an act of general naturalisation. So that's an important plus for Ireland, uh, because naturalisation carried with it certain benefits in regard to trade and taxation, uh, which were uh, and the trans- transmission of land to your successors and heirs, and those were important advantages. But... Um, As against that, Ormond was working against all these other hostile factors which made life difficult for him. And in addition, he had to try and overcome the reputation Ireland had all over Europe, really, in the 1640s and 50s, certainly all over Protestant Europe, because it was well known that there had been massacres of Protestants in Ireland in 1641, and the reports of those massacres had been greatly exaggerated. Um, But the Huguenots no doubt believed them.
4: Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold. Even them who kept thy truth so pure of old when all our fathers worshipped stocks and stones. Forget not, in thy book record their groans who were thy sheep. And in their ancient fold, slain by the bloody Piemontese that rolled mother with infant down the rocks, their moans the vales redoubled to the hills, and they to heaven, their martyred blood and ashes sow o'er all the Italian fields, where still doth sway the triple tyrant, that from these may grow a hundredfold, who, having learnt thy way, early may fly the Babylonian woe.
5: when we're thinking about the Huguenots, we're inclined to think that the, uh, the only problem of persecution in Europe is, is that going on in France with the revocation and the Catholic persecution. And in England, of course, by the 18th and the 19th century, there's a tremendous sense that England means Protestantism and freedom, and France means, means persecution and Catholicism. But the point I really wanted to make was that although that becomes true after uh, the Glorious Revolution, when you do get toleration established in England, but before that, That's to say, in the generation after the Civil War, in the reign of Charles II, there's an enormous drive to um, put down the Puritans. And this is the period when, um, after Cromwell's uh, rule, The Puritans have been driven out, Charles II has come back to his throne. And there's a tremendous attempt by um, cavalier gentlemen, by the bishops of the restored Anglican church to um, get their own back. Very often it was a a straightforward case of revenge, but of course it was also a strong commitment to um, Anglicanism, to the Church of England as the true reformed church. And so the Puritans are really out in the wilderness, the Quakers, the Baptists. Um, I suppose the famous example is John Bunyan who spends 12 years in, in Bedford jail. And so all these Puritans are campaigning for toleration in England. And when complaints begin in England, uh, the English start saying, well, uh, poor old Huguenots in France, the Puritans turn around on them and say, um, well, look, you know, you're as bad. You're persecuting in England. Um, um, you've got to look to your own problems first. Give us toleration. And they even say, not only do they use the example of the Edict of Nantes and say, look, at least they had some freedom, these, these uh, Huguenots in France, we want freedom here but they even start calling the Anglican bishops uh, popish because p- they associate persecution with, with, with popery and so they say until Protestants can be truly tolerant they can't really call themselves Protestants What in
1: your view is the key to the transformation that did occur that allowed the kind of tolerance that made the, the reception of, of Huguenots a, something that was uh, worthwhile and attractive for them
5: well, of course, the crucial change is the revolution of 1688, 1689, when William of Orange came over. And you get an act of toleration um, passed into law in 1689, and the whole situation changes then. I think what is important is that when James II is on the throne, um, he's a Catholic, and there's a strong sense that Protestants should uh, hang together rather than hang separately.
1: <laughs> but Yes, but what underpins the legislation, any of you? I mean, what... What kind of shift occurred? I mean, it is astonishing when you think about it that you mm. have this, this kind of transformation within yes. a comparatively short space of time.
5: Yes, there is an enormous change, as you say, but, uh, through just a few years. I think what, what you have to look at in the governors in England, the English ruling orders, is what are they most frightened of? Sometimes They're frightened of two things. They're frightened of Puritans, the old Cromwellians. They don't want that Republican uh, um, anarchy again but they're also frightened of popery and Catholicism. And the question is, what weighs strongest in their mind? In the early 1680s, they're desperately frightened of a new Republican uprising by the Baptists and the Quakers and so on. But once James comes to the throne, their fears all change about, and they're really, now, really frightened that James is going to impose Catholicism. So now they start hanging together with all the Protestants. So it is a question of uh, their changing fears.
2: In Ireland, the situation was very uh, particular, um, in England, uh, there were problems as regards conformity, conforming to uh, the Anglican uh, ritual, um, and accepting Anglican ordination. In Ireland, the settlement here was encouraged specifically by the state, and therefore uh, by the act uh, which really governed this settlement, the 1692 act, um, freedom uh, of worship was granted to the uh, the emigres, the Huguenots. So that they were entitled to practice their own form of worship and were not required to accept for their pastors religious ordination. Doesn't mean, of course, that some uh, actually did not uh, join the Anglican Church. But they had this freedom of worship, which was not so
0: easy to obtain in the context, say, of late 17th century England. Um, before the 1690s, Uh, Dublin is the centre where a French community has been established. Then in the 1690s uh, a whole group developed. The person who's responsible is Lord Galway um, who was a French nobleman who had fought for William uh, in various battles in Ireland of which Orim was probably the most important um, because he made a a major contribution. He wanted his fellow countrymen, uh, and King William also wanted to encourage the Huguenots to come. From his point of view, they were loyal subjects, they had nowhere else to go, they depended on him, Um, they were needy, um, and they were going to give him good service, so he encouraged them.
6: Uh, There has been a, a long tradition which has seen Galway as the enemy of Catholicism in Ireland and the chief architect of the... Uh, increased penal laws of the 1690s uh, who was attempting to obtain revenge for the sufferings of the Huguenots in France under Louis XIV and making use of the same sort of techniques that Louis turned against the Huguenots uh, to persecute the Irish Catholics.
1: And when you began to look at the evidence what what did you discover?
6: When I turned to the evidence uh, the picture uh, was quite different and in some ways much more fascinating. It showed that Galway had been consistently uh, misrepresented and that uh, he was certainly not a, uh, an active persecutor. His involvement with the enactment of the penal law of 1697, the famous Bishop's Banishment Act, uh, was that of an administrator and not of a persecutor for conscience' sake. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Galway was a soldier, uh, he was, I think, uh, a fairly straightforward individual, uh, taciturn, a man with strong family loyalties, and uh, a man who took seriously uh, his legacy as representative of the Huguenots at the court of Louis XIV uh, into the very changed circumstances of exile, uh, who saw himself as a leader in exile uh, with a responsibility for helping and protecting uh, the less fortunate members of the refuge. The myth that grew up about him uh, was a deliberately fabricated myth. Um, It's a rather complicated story. Uh, First, the myth was generated by uh, agents of the Irish uh, Catholic uh, landed classes uh, who wished to block the legislation banishing the bishops and regular clergy from the country. And it was also exploited by the French uh, because of two reasons. Uh, One, uh, that Galway had abandoned estates in France, which under the terms of the Treaty of Ryswick of the summer of 1697, he should, in theory, have been entitled to receive back now the war was over. The the black propaganda uh, was intended to uh, make Galway appear as a rabid persecutor of Catholics so that Louis XIV's Catholic allies, and we must uh, remember that Catholic Europe, uh, the emperor and the Spaniards, uh, supported Louis XIV against the French and the Catholic Irish, that these people would not be prepared to speak uh, in uh, Galway's favor either to William or, more importantly, to Louis the Fourteenth and his ministers. Second reason uh, enters into the world of fantasy and has uh, dimensions of a 17th century James Bond. Uh, Galway, before he came to Ireland uh, to take up the governorship in 1697, uh, had been William of Orange's ambassador in Savoy. And in this position, he came to know of facts uh, about Louis XIV's intentions to assassinate William of Orange, uh, which the French king was very anxious to prevent uh, becoming public. Uh, The French king consistently denied uh, that he had any involvement uh, with the attempts to assassinate William of Orange, Uh, but what Galway found out was that in 1696, Louis had entered into negotiations uh, with a notorious Italian hitman called Count Bozzelli of Bergamo, who arranged to come to London in the entourage of the Venetian ambassador uh, with 50 desperados who were then to attack William in the streets of London and to dispose of him. Galway uh, was then approached by other Italians uh, who offered in turn to dispose of Bozzelli in return for a large payment. and. Uh, Galway, acting on William's instructions, uh, refused this offer. And uh, naturally, uh, Louis would have found it very embarrassing indeed if any revelations of this kind had been made public. By blackening Galway's reputation, uh, Louis effectively ensured uh, that any revelations that he might make uh, would not be treated with any seriousness by the rulers of Catholic Europe.
0: Something like 200,000. ...refugees in all left France. The majority of Protestants stayed in France, but about 200,000 left. Now, the largest single number went to the Netherlands. The next largest, probably 40 or 50,000, came to England. About 10,000 came to Ireland, I believe. Now, in terms of the total population of the countries at the time, it's probably a similar, a similar number and therefore suggests perhaps a similar contribution...
1: I'm thinking of in in your book. There's a reference to uh, you look at the sort of genetic uh, look at this under a kind of genetic heading, and uh, I think you quote is it Darlington. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can look at the Huguenots in terms of their uh,
0: psychology, their makeup as a, as a people. What kind of thoughts have you on that? I think what strikes me at working on them is the fact that they were refugees, and because they were refugees, they are displaced they have no option but to work exceptionally hard in order to survive. Um, In order to get away from France, they hadn't just walked out, taking with them whatever they happened to have. They'd faced penalties which ranged from imprisonment through execution, transportation to the New World, um, to the ultimate penalty, which was service-chained aboard the French king's galleys in the Mediterranean, uh, in order to get out. And therefore to run that sort of gamut and to face uh, the king's ships in France, gassing the holes of ships in case there were Huguenots in barrels trying to get out, To, to run those sorts of risks, you weren't just walking out with all your possessions. So many of them had very little. And if you're in that situation, firstly, you must have been very determined. And that's going to make an impression on the places you go to. And secondly, you've no option but to work extra hard. You just can't survive if you don't. Fortunately for the Huguenots, the majority of them um, were people who worked with... The skills were in their hands. Weavers, for instance. They carried their skills with them. They could move them. If they had mostly been, let us say, um, wine producers, what would they have done in Ireland?
7: The records in Ireland generally are very bad, so it's quite difficult to um, to find particular family you can be looking for a long time but I suppose the first thing I would have done was gone to Lombard Street to uh, look up the earliest possible births and marriage certs and that will give you parishes and so on and then you try to look up the relevant parish registers then you could go to the public record office and um, When you're dealing with Protestant families, there are um, books of indexes of marriages and births and so on, and uh, some wills. But quite often, uh, the most helpful thing for a Dublin family would be the registry of deeds, if your ancestors ever had any property dealings whatsoever, and they're in the registry of deeds. You can find an awful lot of family details in deeds, and it was mostly through that that I eventually found them.
1: What were the first things you began to discover about uh, your own family, your own family name?
7: Well, um, they had changed their name from Leclerc to Clark, which made it very hard to find them because there's lots of Clarks in Ireland... And um, just like many other Huguenot families who also Anglicised their name over the years. But uh, the first Leclerc I could find was uh, a Pierre Leclerc who was definitely in Dublin in 1710. And of course, there were Dublin parish registers for the Huguenots specifically. So you can get quite a lot of information for the early period from those. And this man married in Dublin in 1716, another Huguenot, and he set up as a wine merchant, which was a very wise move because um, all the people who were tradesmen that um, were involved in things like weaving and so on found it very hard to make ends meet. Whereas uh, a wine merchant had no difficulty keeping going in Dublin because the gentry drank phenomenal amounts of wine and um, if you look at um, the importation of wine it is an amazing amount per head of population in Ireland at the time so he this Pierre Leclerc became quite prosperous and was able to raise his family in reasonable comfort and um, his son who I was also descended from a uh, died young, but uh, then his son again, Pierre Abercrombie Leclerc, would seem to have been quite a colourful character. He certainly had a lot of property dealings, both in Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford, uh, Tullamore, and so on. And he managed to acquire four wives. um, And he was a linen merchant, by all accounts.
1: What do you find among your own people of your own family name what what kind of interest in in their huguenot past do you, do you find
7: well i suppose they would have a certain amount uh, i think if one has a slightly unusual background was always vaguely interested but i certainly wouldn't myself have done anything about actually researching them either if if i hadn't felt i needed a hobby at the time And um, I found my own family fairly boring, but the Huguenots as a group became fascinating. And in fact, the whole of Dublin in the 18th century was an amazing place with um, the gentry entertaining on a lavish scale. On the other hand, dreadful poverty amongst the uh, poorer people. And, in fact, many travellers to Dublin at the time state that they never in any other city saw quite such a difference between the poorer classes and the gentry.
6: Well, two things. Um, I suppose the the most important uh, was the unpopularity of the Huguenots. Uh, This came out very clearly in a letter from William of Orange to Lord Galway in November 1698, Uh, I was surprised that the Huguenots were so unpopular uh, with the Protestant colonists in Ireland, and also uh, the way in which Irish Catholics uh, saw the Huguenots, uh, a mixture of fear and trepidation uh, because they thought the policy of the English government was to replace them in Ireland by Huguenot refugee settlers, and also from the point of view of the Irish Catholics, the soldiers who had gone to France, uh, with Sarsfield, uh, jealousy that the Huguenots were being so well treated uh, by the English Protestants, while the treatment they received from the France of Louis XIV was distinctly shabby. Uh, there
2: are differences between Ireland and the rest. Uh, those differences are largely, the rest of Europe, I mean, the, 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 those differences are largely, I think, governed by the fact that there was no uh, tradition of Huguenot emigration to this country before they came. For the main, main wave of immigration here. Uh, in Holland, there were already long-established Huguenot churches. Uh, there were, uh, the same thing was true for uh, England. From the beginning of the 16th From century. From the very beginning of yes. the 16th century, mm-hmm. yes. Whilst here they came into a totally uh, new uh, territory, uh, they tended to concentrate either in the settlement of Port Arlington or in Dublin and Cork. Um, they were few in numbers. Uh, they Probably it was probably more difficult for them to maintain their identity. And I don't mean by this just simply their religious identity, but also their French identity. The two are connected. Uh, they attempted to do this uh, through a number of uh, devices, I suppose, such as, for instance, intermarriage. I mean, it's quite clear that for the first two generations, the, the, the Huguenot refugees intermarried. Uh, very quickly uh, they become assimilated in, I suppose, what can be called the ascendancy here.
1: What attitude or how sympathetic were they to Irish Catholics who, after 1690, were being persecuted? What, what uh, How did they view that?
2: Well, that's a very difficult question. Um, I don't think there is any uh, direct evidence that they had, the, that one individual, or as a group, uh, they, they expressed their views on the situation. Um, it, it has to be said that um, they were, of course, men of the 17th century. Uh, they took it for granted uh, that uh, the state Uh, should impose uh, religious conformity. They suffered from that, but this was part of their outlook nevertheless. Um, They had, most of those who came here were uh, soldiers, professional soldiers, aristocrats whose only trade was soldiering. Uh, A situation of war or of uh, 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 general unrest was not something they were unfamiliar with. I think, largely, probably, they ignored the situation of the Irish Catholics. They probably were more sensitive to the situation of the dissenters here, who were in a less favorable position, because they were not formally granted freedom of worship, than they, the Huguenots, were. Um, However, um, as they settled, and it took them a certain time to settle, largely because of their profession, they went back to wars, um, when, as this settled, I think there is, one can detect a certain awareness of um, the uh, penal law system uh, which was applied in Ireland, and, and the parallel could not have failed to strike them. And in this respect, there's a very curious um, text written by one of the leaders of the dissidents, uh, of the guerrilla warfare which took place in the Seven in the first decade of the 17th century. As you know, in the Seven, there was a rebellion of the Protestants who fought off the king's armies, Louis XIV's armies, for a very long time. Now, the leader, uh, after a truce uh, uh, was uh, made, uh, came over first to England and to Ireland, indeed to Port Arlington. And he published his memoirs. It's the Memoirs of the Wars of the Seven. His name was Jean Cavalier. And there's a remarkable preface written by him where he makes an argument for general toleration by the state of all religions. And although the Catholics are not uh, designated by name, it is quite clear that uh, he actually uh, intends his text to be read as including them.
1: In Strangers in Ireland, you heard the voices of Jean-Paul Pition, Trinity College, Dublin, Robin D. Gwyn, Massey University, New Zealand, Michael Goldie, Churchill College, Cambridge, John Miller, University of London, Patrick Kelly, Trinity College, Dublin, and Vivian Costello of Hoth County, Dublin, who descends from the Huguenot family of Leclerc.